You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Sometimes those we call the nicest people in the world are abusers. A crushing reality, no doubt. We're quick to deny the reality of power dynamics in our day. We're attracted to politeness and we're drawn to defending people who have good reputations but have been found guilty of awful crimes. Think Matt Lauer, think Robbie, think Cosby. These men were praised as trustworthy faces and inspiring voices, even heroes in their fields. But to those they abused, they were liars. They were thieves who ruined the lives of many. For years, the women they harmed were silenced. They lived in fear that their testimonies wouldn't be believed because of the status these men held. And even if they were believed by the public, they didn't know if they could trust the systems that had the power to help them. They kept their mouths shut. Traumatized by the indifference of the world, their churches, their schools, their families, and their friends. The Bible, as we've seen, it recognizes the plight of these, of the abused. Our passage today, it featured the story of an abused woman named Hagar. And she was abused by two heroes of the faith, Abram and Sarai. I want to acknowledge that today's sermon, it's, it's a heavy one. We'll be talking about abuse, and it's one that affects women mostly, but I don't want any men who have gone through this atrocity as well to feel left out at all. You are seen and loved. This sermon is a lament of evil and a cry for better. It's a call to sit in the weight of darkness that many have felt to recognize the wrong of being a silent bystander, but it's also meant to point us towards hope. Substantial hope, hope that doesn't put a Band-Aid on gushing wounds, but rather looks at God who is compassionate and draws near to the brokenhearted. As a young male, I realize that there are many complexities to this conversation. I haven't lived a lot of life. I haven't always stood up for those in harm's way. And I have a long way to go before becoming truly trauma-informed. In other words, I feel and have these things that I feel disqualify me from preaching this sermon but nonetheless, Hagar's story it compels me to speak. Hidden stories in here compel me to speak. I know there are some in this room who have a story like this. And for those of you who have been battered and silenced and threatened to stay quiet by their abusers, I want to say this clearly. What happened to you was wicked, and it will never not be so. Like Hagar, choice and value were stripped from you, and it was never the right of your oppressor to take those for you, from you. And I'm sorry. I also want to say that hope is still available to you. I want to make the heart of my sermon what Diane Langberg once said to a room full of people who have gone through the trauma of abuse. She says this, while looking into things we do not want to be true, we will also find comfort and mercy because staring into dark things has already been done by the one who came to us and bore them all. He is also the one who brings healing to us in seemingly hopeless places. That's my point tonight. The darkness that has shaped you, which is very strong, it's not stronger than the healing hands of God in Christ, who is compassionate towards you, believes you, and calls you by name. God is a healer. He is not, he is one who has been bruised and abused himself. 
and he is also one who holds victory in his hands as the champion of the oppressed. So my first point tonight as we look at this story is about the main problem, the evil of abuse. What, what is abuse? Abuse is the action of the powerful hurting the defenseless. Abuse misuses power and it disrupts people's lives with pain when they're looking for joy. It comes in many forms, right? It can look like a husband belittling his wife via his words, verbal abuse. It can look like an uncle or aunt physically asserting themselves against the will of their nephew or niece, intruding upon a child's safety through acts like punching or hitting physical abuse. Abuse takes the story of a harmed person and it tries to make the storyteller feel as if she or he is crazy and incapable of telling the truth about their experience. Emotional abuse. It looks like using your power to enforce yourself sexually onto someone. Sexual abuse. And as we know, this is not just something that applies to the act of intercourse. It applies to any acts that exceed another person's willingness by way of force and manipulation, all to satisfy the desires of the abuser. In this story, Hagar's story, physical and abuse and trauma are at the uh, physical abuse and trauma are at the forefront. Dolores Williams, a scholar, she says that Hagar's story is shaped by the problems and desires of her owners. And I think it's fair to say that this is true of the experience of many abuse survivors. And what, so what were the problems and desires of Hagar's masters? The problem, barrenness. The desire, a child to have as an heir. But the method was sexual abuse. Sometimes abuse is the fruit of unfulfilled desires. How did Sarai understand her barrenness? She says, since the Lord has prevented me from having this child. She makes sense of her pain by supposing God was denying her the privilege of bearing a child. What she wanted was a precious thing and it was withheld from her and that sent her into a frenzy, that withholding did. And in light of the story, unfortunately, we still live in a world where disappointment and discontentment somehow justify abusing people. England had a problem, an unfulfilled desire that not enough countries were following suit with their way of life. So they wanted more influence around the world. That was their desire. And their method was that they enforced their values upon other countries. Spain liked gold and other riches and wanted to discover and own more land. And their method? They end up committing mass genocide in order to acquire their desires. And by making Hagar her surrogate, Sarai was building a legacy of her own that her descendants could remember her by. She most likely had an inheritance given to her by her father, meant to be passed on to her children. But because Sarai was sterile, her lineage was threatened to stop with her. So in order to pass down her name, the text says she took Hagar, gave her to her husband, and Abram came to her, Hagar became pregnant. In no sense in this story was Hagar's value taken into account. She was no more precious to her masters than their possessions were to them because she was just another means to fixing their problems and desires. The pain that Sarah felt for the Lord preventing her from her desire led to a very real and difficult shame. As an influential woman who was unable to bear children in ancient times, Sarah would have faced societal dishonor. 
But she had the power to still have a child through a surrogate. So her shame ended up distorting her power, leading her to become an abuser. Her unfulfilled desires inspired her to take matters into her own hands instead of driving her to reliance upon the Lord and her community. The logic that it's reasonable to cause others pain when we feel the shame of not obtaining our beautiful dreams is still so prevalent today, isn't it? A shame that distorts our power. When will the ends justify the means mentality die? Your disappointment and discontentment are reasonable, friends. Even anger at God is fine. Sarah's feelings of sorrow over barrenness are not the problem. The way she distorted the power she had in order to get what she wanted is where the issue lies. And Abram flippantly doing what Sarah wanted and raping Hagar is the evil. We must understand the means by which we achieve our desires matter as much as the desire itself. No matter how good our desires are, abuse is never a justifiable method to get them. Humans matter more than the values we want to spread. Women's bodies matter more than the many ways men and women have allowed for the oppression. Hagar deserved to hear that, and you sisters and brothers who have gone through the same atrocities deserve to hear that. The abuse you endured was evil. As we've said, abuse is often the result of unfulfilled desires and shame of the abuser, but abuse is also an evil that affects victims past the moment of their abuse. It affects them so much that their experience of abuse drives them to view themselves through the lens of that abuse. Meaning, some people who have been abused, beaten, and emotionally manipulated into compromising situations have been so humiliated that their experience begins to define their worth. 2 Samuel 13, it portrays an awful story where Tamar, the daughter of David, is being forced into her bed by by her half-brother Amnon. And as this is happening, she says, No, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? I wonder how many of you would answer that question on this side of your encounter with abuse? Have you been able to get rid of the disgrace forced upon you? Or does your disgrace continue to follow you like a shadow of shame that tells you you're worthless, that you deserved what happened to you and that you're not seen? After what happened to Tamar, she tore her robe that represented her virginity. How sad is this? How many similar stories do we have today of Christian women who have been sexually abused and they feel sinful because they lost their virginity instead of believing the sinner was their abuser? Sister, brother, none of what happened to you was your fault. May the burden of responsibility you might bear for what happened to you melt away. Your shame is lying to you, but it can be very convincing, can it? Shame doesn't care about the truth. It lies to the abused and it tells them they are the problem when the real problem is what was done to them. If you feel the shame today, I can't imagine how lonely and scary it is. The damage it does to you and your brain, it's unfair. It makes it impossible to be gentle to yourself when you go through trauma. 
That's another thing shame does. Not only does it lie to you, it traumatizes the abused. Trauma is the body's feeling of betrayal after any horrible incident. It's the body's response triggered by memory of evil or tragic things that have happened to you. Having people who were supposed to protect you end up being your abusers causes trauma. Fear, hatred, and shattered hope follow experiences like this. Your body remembers what happens and it recoils at the memory. It might make you relive it as if it were truly happening in real time or the memory is so vivid that the emotions you felt when you were being abused are just as palpable now as they were then, which leads to desperate places. Genesis 16, four through seven says, when Sarai saw that Hagar was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that Hagar ran away from her. The desperate place Hagar was led to was a desert. Both Old and New Testament speak to God's heart for defenseless and his hatred for the wicked. It says this, Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Another one, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and you take it in hand. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love these descriptions of God. He is one whose heart beats for the weakened, the marginalized, and the abused. God looks at the plight and he notices them with compassion. As the passage said before, he considers our griefs and he takes them in his hand He doesn't shame us for the pain we've incurred, and he doesn't lord over the abuse the truth that they are sinners in order to diminish the specifics of the abuse they went through. He uplifts them. He believes them, and he wants to relieve them of their distress and their shame. So how does God do this? Many ways, the Bible uh, testifies, but the main way Christ God has confronted the darkness of abuse is by making himself vulnerable, susceptible to it in the first place. Christ did not love us from a distance. He came near, became flesh and faced abuse and death. And we understand typically in Christian communities that Jesus replaces our shame by his death on the cross for the sins we've committed. But how does that apply to the shame the abused feel for what they haven't committed? I believe that Jesus's death on the cross was a triumph over the powers of evil and death. Jesus was not only bearing a curse upon himself where we escape God's wrath and condemnation. No, he won a battle where victims of harm can find safety. 
The cross is where God and Jesus notice his victims in their shame, calls them by name, and gives them a voice like God did to Hagar in the desert. Jesus doesn't sell us a cheapened theology that tells the abused they're being divisive when they share their stories. He welcomes the stories and delights when the abused are comforted and the evildoers are exposed. He delights when the abused are brought into communities who provide the light and comfort of God. He loves seeing his church, as it says in Ephesians 4, not participating in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead exposing them. This is Jesus, shepherd, advocate, the hero who knows our pain. He hates and is angry at the abuse you face, beloved. And he's overturning the powers that made the evil of abuse possible every day. And he delights to transform the effects of abuse through his people. He removes the shame of others through his cross and resurrection and through us, which leads me to my second point. That truth-telling is critical. As Christians, we believe in what is called truth-telling. Truth-telling is not just the opposite of lying. It actively protests against all that is evil. Truth doesn't only deal with correct facts. It contains a love for righteousness and beauty, not abstract theoretical principles for how to live morally. Christians believe Jesus is the truth. What we mean by this confession is that, yes, Jesus is God and the only way to salvation. But we also are saying in this confession that Jesus is the truth, that his way of life was and is the best one to imitate. His steps, his words are authoritative for the life of a a believer and beautiful to his followers. Truth telling is an aspiration I believe many Christians have, most people in general have. But two things it calls for are curiosity Courage. What does curiosity have to do with truth telling? Well, curiosity opens us up to reality much more deeply than the objective goggles we might think we have on camp. Curiosity takes statistics that one in five American women and one in 33 men have faced sexual abuse, and it walks into each building and venue with the awareness that we pass by many overlooked, neglected, and abused people on the daily. Curiosity relieves oneself of the need to have the solutions. Curiosity listens. It holds people's stories with the supernatural power to press into the messiness on the terms of the victim. I was talking to two friends last week about the sermon for a few hours, and they rightly called this thing called agenda-driven listening that looks like curiosity and empathy as just a mere technique to avoid dealing with the truth of a person's story, especially their pain. Agenda-driven listening is a conversation not driven by the terms and story of the victim, but on the questions and goals of the listener. He or she might ask questions that seem observant and caring, but are actually self-serving. The agenda-driven listener is not fostering curiosity, but is constructing a shield to avoid the hard truth spoken in their direction. So what stifles our curiosity? Because I would venture to say most agenda-driven listeners have the right desire. They do to help and love people. But it's possible that we don't get to a true place of curiosity that supports truth-telling because we're nervous of the true cost of curiosity. 
What stifles curiosity is the fear of hearing things we don't want to be true, of staring into those dark places. We might find ourselves complicit in the pain of others when we listen to them with real curiosity. We might learn that one of our closest friends or family members were another person's abuser. I bet we all know what it feels like to be surprised by what people, to clo- the people close to us have hidden. I know I have. But we can't tell the truth until we know the truth. So curiosity compels us to listen, to carry, not to fix immediately, but to embrace the stories and the pain of the victims. And we cry with the frustrated foster parents who don't know how to get through to their traumatized children through words of affirmation and acts of love. Curiosity takes us on a difficult but important journey. Another feature of truth-telling is courage. Knowing the truth from a place of curiosity is only part of the truth-telling call of a Jesus follower. We must courageously speak about what we've heard in ways that protect the victim. Courage, as we've all heard, it's not the absence of fear, but um, it's not letting fear be the driving force of our actions, even though we feel it. In the case of Hagar's abuse and the stories of the many here or in, and in the world who have been abused, I wish Abram had the courage to tell Sarai that this wasn't the way. I wish he didn't pander to her just because he knew how humiliating her barrenness was. Instead, Abram, a hero of the faith, he succumbed to her desires and probably his own as well. As one who was promised to be a father of many nations but was getting old, Abram may have thought Sarai's scheme was a good idea. It's hard to be courageous when you've got desires that match an abuser's. Encourage our conflict is not only fighting against the wicked desires of others, it's often noticing and repurposing the desires within ourselves so that we don't use wicked methods to accomplish them. It looks like saying, no, this is not the way, even to our most beloved. Hagar was left defenseless as a result of Sarai and Abram's fear of confronting their own desires. And many survivors, when they get to the point of sharing their stories, they realize how nervous and timid their friends become. Those friends want to be advocates, but we don't want to be seen as divisive. We don't want to receive threatening emails. We don't want to put our families in different difficult situations. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. When the head of the school shreds the report or offers an NBA to protect the perpetrator and silence the victims with some hush money and you know about it, what do you do? I want to be clear, it's not my intent to shame those of us, I know I am one of these, who have let our friends down by staying silent. I understand it's not easy. I am, though, inviting us to consider living in a way that protests the evil of abuse by looking to Jesus, who defended a framed woman others called an adulteress, who touched a leper whom others preferred to neglect. What are we, Mosaic, going to do when these stories come? to our door. One thing we must recognize is that courage is best practiced in community and not alone. We can gather alongside others who are already moving the ball forward in spaces of justice for the abuse and learn from those who are proficient, proficient in courageous truth-telling so that we don't feel unequipped forever. 
as Christians, it's important for us to understand that the point of our truth telling is not how we're perceived, but the healing of those we're aiming to help find safety and justice. This is where communities of faith have really struggled in America. We've become so accustomed to loving the grace of God for all sinners that somehow we've missed the Bible's call to defend the oppressed. When it comes to the issue of sexual abuse, the evangelical church has been known to leave victims in the shadows, telling them that they will receive justice one day far off in the future, leaving them lonely for the rest of their present lives here on earth. The Houston Chronicle released a report on an evangelical convention almost two years ago. Do you know what was discovered? There have been 700 victims of sexual misconduct in the convention in the last 20 years. 700 pastors, deacons, youth leaders, seducing and deceiving members and dehumanizing them. Why did it take the Houston Chronicle to release this? Why didn't we call ourselves out? This example of loan, which is just one of thousands in one denomination of the church, it's happening in so many others, should lead us to mourn how veiled the church's eyes are to the value of abuse victims. I do believe there is a great work Jesus wants to do with his church, but we must admit that we failed and allowed for a system that silences victims, whether that was our intent or not. So how do we effectively prevent these things from happening? Well, one of the best things we can do is become people who are presences of safety and love, where people know truth is prioritized and justice will be pursued. There are personal decisions we must make to be reliable advocates, yes, like testifying both in the church and in the courts. But there's another crucial key that buttresses all our efforts as truth tellers, the spirit of God. We as broken beings need the spirit. Yes, we need others to bolster our courage, but more than anything, we need the spirit of God to infuse us with power and a heart for holiness. If our hearts don't hold space for the spirit's counsel and the spirit's power to transform us into truth tellers, we will only feel more shame that we're not courageous. Jesus only desires to love us into courage. We will only become better for it though we will be exposed and face sleepless nights. And others will be helped, seen, and loved. And we will all be more convinced in the ability of Jesus to heal, not in our own power. We listen to others, we pray for courage, and cooperate with the work of the Spirit. And as the inimitable Nikki Norman says, Jesus is our hero, and the Spirit is our healer. We partner with the triune God and his vision of healing the world together. My last point is this one. Thank you so much. God bless you, Susan. Lord, I am stood. Hey, this is healing ministry. Thank you. God bless you. Oh, Lord. Drops stuff on my face. Drops not. Okay, God bless you. Woo! Last point. God is not mocked. You hear that, devil? He is not mocked. <laughs> All throughout Hagar's... <laughs> All throughout Hagar's story, God seems to be silent. That might be how you feel today. For all the years where you cried out for his help, 
It's possible you didn't see him in the darkness. Perhaps your faith has been shattered. Maybe you still wonder why you had to go through it all by yourself. When we get to the part of the story where Hagar is in the desert, I have a couple reactions. Confusion, but then hope. I felt confused because God asks her two questions that sound tone deaf. The the passage says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Where are you coming from and where are you going? Doesn't he know? Didn't he see? Not only that, he tells her to go back. This is my confusion. Is God one who defends the abused or the abusers? Two quick things on this. I could spend a lot of time. But I believe in this story. God tells Hagar to go back because she was a slave who had no resources and she was pregnant. I've chosen to believe he was leading her back to a place where she had resources to survive. Although she was being mistreated, which is never excusable, she wouldn't die. I'm still very uncomfortable with this because God is classically understood as the one who's all powerful. Couldn't he have removed her from her awful circumstance and provided resources? What was back there for her in her land of oppression? As I've said, there's much to impact here. But as I've said, I believe God was looking out for Hagar and her material health as she was going to have a child. But here's where I feel hope. The angel of the Lord, most likely Yahweh himself, calls Hagar by name. She wasn't a statistic to him. She was a human being in whom he delighted. Sarai and Abram never call Hagar by name. They say, here's your slave, but God calls her by name. Picture her deserted as God finds her by a spring in the wilderness. And what does he do? He gives her a promise. God is not mocked by evil and will one day finally destroy it. His promises are stronger than the darkness that overcomes us. The darkness that overcame Hagar. And he does this without overlooking her pain. And do you know how Hagar responds? She names God Elroy and asks, have I seen the one who sees me? If being seen by the God we call the father of comfort is not a jump starter of hope, then I don't know what is. For many of us, not being seen sends us into further despair than we've already felt. And to finally be met with the voice of God who has heard your afflictions in a desert of all places is a hopeful oasis. I don't know how many of you have felt nameless or unseen by God on this side of what you've been through. Maybe you're still feeling hopeless, and that's okay. God's good news was never meant to be a bandage to cover up our wounds. It travels with us in our despair, regardless of how good or bad our feelings are about his promises. God promised Hagar a bright future through the son she would conceive. And for us, beloved, in Christ, in Christ, God's own son, our future is brighter than our present is dark because of Christ's past suffering and his present victory. As evil persists, God is not indifferently turning his face away. 
He's walking alongside us. At the end of our rope is where Christ's salvation and healing is not an abstraction to us. That is where he shows us he still has his wounds. There he shows you that he wants to remove from you the shame that has followed you this far. His plans to restore your present life involve tending to the wounds that are still bleeding and pointing you to hope in him, giving you the light of his presence. Jesus' voice is one that takes your name seriously. It is a voice of comfort, and it's one you can know. What you've been through does not make him look at you as damaged. He doesn't only identify you as an abused victim. He sees you as a world changer, as an indispensable person placed in the world for so much glory and redemption. Your value means so much to Jesus that he's claimed you as one of his own and intends to get in the way of others that might try to discredit your worth anytime, now or in the future. You have a name to Jesus and he speaks it with so much compassion and awe and hope because he knows all you've been through and he's walked with you in it. And while he may not get to wiping all your tears on this side of your journey to hope, future hope does still remain. He promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes in the new creation. He is not one who abuses the power he holds like the many heroes we know who have. He intends to restore your vision to see yourself the way he truly does. Delightful, worthy, gifted. And by his grace, over time, we will see the healing hands of God in Christ restoring you in a fashion we never imagined possible. Because our God is not mocked, and his compassion is stronger than the darkness that has overcome you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, sitting with Hagar's story, sitting with the hidden stories in here, knowing you see the afflicted. You see their grief, and you take it in your hand. As one of your psalms say, it says, you have kept track of our tossings and our tears and you keep them in your bottle. You have not lost sight of your beloved. God, I pray you make your power known to those who have been isolated and felt shame for what has happened to them. I pray that you give us courage to become truth tellers that can only happen from a place of acknowledging our salvation and righteousness in you, Jesus. Let us not think we can do it alone. And we pray that we trust daily that you are not mocked, that you are not powerless, that your hand is a healing one and a victorious one. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.